Disclaimer. The discussions and personal opinions of the guests do not replace professional advice. It's recommended that you seek your own independent professional mental health or legal support to meet your individual needs. Dr. Joseph Sakdalen is an upper registered clinical psychologist, counselling psychologist and clinical neuropsychologist. He's also obtained postgraduate degrees in clinical neuropsychology and forensic psychiatry where he first practised as a general practitioner, a GP, before becoming a psychologist. Joseph has more than 20 years of clinical experience in the areas of forensic intellectual disabilities, forensic and community mental health, neuropsychology and forensic psychological assessments. His extensive experience has included carrying out clinical psychological and neuropsychological assessments on clients with complex presentations, especially those with severe mental illness, personality issues and complex trauma. He has published articles in peer-reviewed journals, presented at international conferences in his areas of specialty, and he has also developed offender offence-specific programs such as dialectal behaviour therapy, DBT for intellectual disabilities, ID, and sexual and violence reduction programs. We're very lucky to have an in-depth discussion with a psychologist of his calibre around the complexities of mental health diagnoses and the accuracy in diagnosis in the context of the formulation. Welcome to Life in the Psych Lane, Joseph. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure, Rachel. Such a privilege to have you on Life in the Psych Lane podcast. You are my clinical supervisor. We work together in the sex and violent offender work in a forensic space. And I came around learning that you have an absolutely brilliant mind um, and we have a passion with similar areas of psychology and the clients that we work with. So I'm so thrilled that we can have this conversation today and go into the deep dive of psychology. It's so nice to actually uh, be working closely with uh, psychologists who you have some kind of uh, uh, interest, similarities in our interests, right? And our expertise, so. We do. There's so much research that you've published, work that you've done. You work in the clinical and forensic areas of work. Um, there's obviously so much. So I'd actually love for you to maybe share your history, your experience, where you've worked, and even just start where you like, because I'd love to hear it. Yeah, so I, I'm originally from the Philippines, and uh, so I completed my bachelor's in psychology, and then actually afterwards I decided to pursue medicine. So I started, you know, my medical studies, and then I realized that you know I find you know attending psychology classes really kind of therapeutic. <laughs> so uh, that's my own therapy. So I, I actually yes. completed uh, a master's whilst I'm actually. Uh, finishing my medical degree. Wait, let's park that. Are you saying you was you started a medical degree and then you just added in like a master's whilst completing my medical wow. degree? Wow. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I got really kind of uh, into psychology. Uh, I just realized really my calling, and and then I pursued a PhD in psychology. I practiced as a general practitioner for a while, mm-hmm. but moved across to. Uh, what's this? Uh, completing a, a doctorate in clinical psychology uh, at the university at uh, Ateneo de Manila University, which is a university in the Philippines. So wow, I did not know that, and honestly, my mind is sort of like I've got a little mind blow moment of like <laughs> that's what yeah. I thought. Brilliant mind. <laughs> and at that time, I was actually running a preschool. Yes, I also own a preschool in the Philippines. Wow. Uh, it was because uh, you know when I. I started my master's, really. Um, I was with um, kind of professionals. I'm, I was much younger. I was in my early 20s. Yeah. And uh, all of them were owning, you know, run, running schools. And I thought <laughs> it was cool to also, you know, run, yep. run, uh, run a school. And yeah, so then yes. I... And you, we and both have that. You've got the business mind and yeah, you've had yeah. all that experience as well. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And then what happened was... Um, I didn't really know much about Australia. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to actually apply for a kind of a, a scholarship here in at the Ooh. University of Melbourne yep. uh, for a master's in public health. 
A master's in public health. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> health economics and program evaluation. So, wow. yes, I'm, uh, and I said uh, the way I saw it was, uh, you know, um, I haven't been to Australia. You know, Melbourne sounds like a cool city, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I won't lose anything by, you know, if, you know, if it's a full scholarship. So I obtained yeah. a full scholarship. So, so I, um, I was in Melbourne in um, the late 1990s. So completed my uh, master's degree and I was still uh, afterwards, I, you know, I left uh, Australia and I was traveling back and forth between um, the Philippines and, and New Zealand. And that's where some of your your published research and then I think the business that we've been talking about in the past is also in New Zealand. Yeah. Obviously, as I was saying, we came across working together at Forensic Disability and when I was first introduced to your name, Joseph Sackdarlin, it was about the research you'd published and it really highlighted for me the need just working with intellectual disabilities in a forensic space, I mean, it's just there's there's such a gap in that area and I became so interested in it and wanting to learn more and you have all that knowledge. Where, and I guess if you can give us a snapshot of your research, where and what is it about? So what happened was I um, ended up working in a forensic um, intellectual disability service mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, in New Zealand, where they enacted the Intellectual Disability Compulsory Care and Rehabilitation Act. Ooh, can you say that one again? Uh, so it's the IDCCNR Act. So it's an act for offenders with intellectual disability. Ah. What happens is they come un- under an order. Yeah. And then uh, it's the obligation of our service to provide treatment to the client group and that's when uh you know there was pressure really to upskill the sector yes. and also develop programs because there's at that time that was in early 2000 there were no existing really programs wow early 2000 uh, evidence-based programs for this client group and then uh so i came across the dialectical behavior therapy yeah and that's when uh you know we started running those uh, groups uh, having to adapt the program and eventually having to publish some articles in in this uh, some specialty area. So that just pioneered the way for treatment and DBT for ID, which is essentially what you were working with and what your program was. Yeah. But it kind of pioneered the way to then have more effective treatment for offenders with an intellectual disability. And obviously, if you could highlight everyone why that's important. Well, uh, the reality is that, you know, uh, this group is really marginalized, right? Yeah. So they don't really pro- you know, uh, receive um, proper treatment, you know, um, within uh, what is they they're criminalized and they end up in, let's say, correctional facilities where, you know, they have to, in a way, um, they end up with a much longer incarceration because, you know, they're not suitable to uh, attend treatment. Yeah. And they're saying that, you know, they're not eligible. Therefore, you know, they get stuck in the system. They get stuck, yeah. Without actually uh, any kind of, you know, um, evidence, you know, receiving any kind of evidence-based treatment, really. So, Which the whole idea of that act is to... Um, rehabilitate people for the betterment of the community, right? And if they get stuck in the system, which is what we're all passionate about, is wanting to better and improve and rehabilitate people, then um, it's just going to keep happening and reoffending in that space. At that time, you know, I came across DBT and the electrical behavior therapy was really uh, developed for women with borderline personality disorder, right? So it wasn't really developed for this client group. I saw kind of the, kind of, you know, the value of you know th- this kind of program, if you modified and adapted to this client group, so mm-hmm. so we started running those groups, and uh, uh, you know, and afterwards we also have to develop other programs. Yes, just a sexual offender treatment program, violence reduction program. So we just had to develop a suite of offense specific programs for this uh, cohort, really. So uh-huh. mm. can you? go into a little bit more detail this forensic space for a lot of people they're probably not necessarily familiar let's say what the forensic psychology work that people do or what you do you know obviously when I was doing the work as well there's a lot of statutory legislations around 
people having to receive treatment, having to be rehabilitated as part of their orders. Yeah. I was wondering if you could highlight your interest and how you fell into the forensic space, whether you saw the need, whether you just felt a, there was a liking to it, or you actually understood the justice system better to then be able to adapt your psychology work to it. But what's really interesting is when I moved across to um, to New Zealand, mm-hmm. I worked in um, community mental health, really. So yeah. it's a community mental health and inpatient psychiatry. Mm-hmm. At that time, I, I didn't actually find out until I started work that, you know, part of my contract was working with clients with intellectual disability and mental health with uh, challenging behaviors. So some mm-hmm. of them, of course, end up offending. And therefore, that's my kind of initial exposure to kind of forensic disability. And then what happened? At that time, I actually don't have any interest in working in forensics. I said, no way. <laughs> yeah, it's more clinical, right? Yeah, well, it's really yeah. challenging. Uh, you know, you're dealing with clients with, you know, of cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, they have difficulty expressing themselves, etc. So... And then what happened was I had an opportunity to move across to Auckland. Mm-hmm. So I, um, where I worked in a f- forensic facility, really. So there was an opening for uh, a psychologist working with clients with intellectual disability. It's forensic. So I said, I'll just give it a go. See how it goes. That was in 2004. <laughs> and now it's 2023, right? Yeah. And I'm still working in this area. So yeah, nine years ago. I mean, and and that's the thing, I think. You know, there's a, it is, uh, and for myself, when I stepped into that area of work, it is, it was a steeper learning curve because there's so much that crosses over in, um, like you were talking about the acts. You and I have talked many times over about mental health, um, unfit to plead, a few different, um, things that you have to follow and become a little bit more learned in the, um, forensic space. But that also gives rise because you highlight a really important, area and I think it's an area of client work that we both are quite passionate about when you work in the forensic space intellectual disability or not and you're you know let's say sex and violent offender space they come with the complexities of mental health they come with personality issues neurodivergent issues and really complicated mental health issues how did you find you took a liking to that or adapted to working with the client presentation? So uh, so when I started uh, to work in the forensic uh, disability service in Mm -hmm. 2004, Mm -hmm. I realized that the clients are just way too complex. Yeah. They have mental health issues. They have personality issues. Some of them have neurological disorders, genetic disorders, that kind of thing. Then offending issues. So I actually had to upskill in uh, neuropsychology at that time. So that's yep. why, you know, I trained again as a neuropsychologist. Yep. I felt like, you know, for me to be able to really kind of work in this area, you know, I need a lot of upskilling. So working, mm-hmm. let's say, yeah, uh, clients with um, neurocognitive issues. Then, of course, there's also forensic where yeah. even with offending behaviors. And then you're also looking at, uh, you know, personality issues, yeah. So for you know, uh, kind of an understanding of personality disorder is also quite important. Plus, you know, mental health. Yeah. And, and what's also interesting with this group is, as much as you know, we, you're dealing with offenders with uh, disabilities, they also uh, have um, kind of history of trauma and yes. victimization. So that's yeah. really kind of the the tricky part there, where you're addressing the offending, but you know very well that you know they also have their own kind of traumas and their own kind of sense of victimization and yep. therefore you cannot just ignore uh, the need for kind of a more trauma-informed approach and what's interesting is that was in 2004 so you don't really hear much of trauma-informed approach that time no i mean oh so, yeah and that was really a huge challenge because uh, when we started developing our programs and you know because when you, you when you incorporate dialectical behavior therapy, it's like it's in some way trauma informed. Yeah, it talks about of course you know previous kind of traumas and everything, and having to address that um, in relation to let's say issues around emotion dysregulation. And yeah, so when I uh, presented on you know um, in a 
conference in the UK around sexual offender treatment, like they just couldn't really comprehend the need to address this trauma history or you know the vulnerabilities. Uh, and yeah, I think it's just what in the past five years that you know there's now a, a focus on you know trauma informed approach, uh, particularly in dealing with uh, offenders with you know uh, uh, mental health issues and you know uh, and trauma issues. So very much, and I think you and I a lot of our conversations centralize a formulation and understanding someone's ideology of their diagnosis, how they came to be. We always talk about the space where. Um, we're trying to understand their formulation and the origin. If an underlying issue is in existence, then yeah. obviously the risk that you're talking about, the victimization, um, their offending will keep continuing, which is the underlying root cause that we always generally need to address. Because mm-hmm. I'm wondering for you, why you like working with complex and maybe a little bit more complicated diagnosis pre- presentation? Not for some reason, I just... I guess because I have done a lot of studies, really, and training, mm-hmm. and uh, then I, of course, work with clients with complex presentation. It was just you know, really kind of mm-hmm. really the direction yeah. to go down, really, in terms of, you know, um, and I really love that kind of work where you're like a troubleshooter, where you don't really know, you know, the complex client, they don't really know that, you know, it's very confusing what the diagnosis is mm-hmm. or are. Mm-hmm. And they come in and actually, you know, do some assessments, clarify mm-hmm. the diagnosis, provide some direction around treatment, you know. So I think, yeah, um, I, I started to develop that kind of interest in that particular area where, you know, you deal with the most complex clients. So Complex diagnoses and presentations can be so confusing in that it's like, you know, I, I sort of explain it's like you're trying to put a hundred puzzle pieces back together and figure it out. And, you know, we talk a lot about um complex PTSD, the value in your assessments that you've done. And I think even every time I speak to you, I know that you essentially have this mindset and um with presentations that come to you, you can see it clearer. You know, you sometimes just get where the where the pieces land, where where the puzzle fits better, and that's what you're saying is a troubleshooting. Because once you have that as a foundation, and I think we'll get there later, but you you know then how that can better inform their treatment, right? Yeah, and also the formulation. So because uh, any kind of treatment starts with the formulation, right? So even when you're doing assessments. You know, we're providing, let's say, some clarity around the diagnosis. The diagnosis is still in the context of the formulation. So the reality is that when you see a client, you really need to understand where the client is coming from, right? Therefore, you you need to understand, you know, uh, what are, you know, aside from, let's say, clarifying the diagnosis, what are really kind of the predisposing factors, the precipitating factors, protective factors, so those kind of, you know, um, different kind of factors that, in a way, contributed to the client's presentation now. Let's use a bit of a, can we use a bit of a hypothetical one? Because I'm thinking, obviously, we talk a lot about complex PTSD, which is different to the DSM-5 text revised DSM PTSD. If we look at something like complex PTSD as a diagnosis. To clarify what Joseph and I are referring to with PTSD and CPTSD, here's a little overview. PTSD refers to post-traumatic stress disorder and CPTSD refers to complex post-traumatic stress disorder. The standard diagnostic and statistical manual for mental health disorders is called the DSM-5-TR and uses the terminology for the diagnosis of PTSD. The diagnosis of CPTSD is from the International Classification of Diseases, ICD-11, that records health information and causes of death, which most medical professionals use. PTSD falls under the category of trauma and stressor-related disorders. They include exposure to a traumatic or stressful event where psychological distress is experienced as anxiety or a fear-based context. Traumatic reactions commonly include dysphoric symptoms, externalizing angry and aggressive symptoms or dissociative symptoms. PTSD, traumatic events, include such things as threatened death, serious injury, sexual violence, 
However, it's not limited to these criteria alone. PTSD and CPTSD have very similar presentations, although as the name suggests, it's more complex in symptomology. Some of the criteria include exposure to one or more traumatic events, re-experiencing the trauma by intrusive memories, flashbacks or nightmares. It can be avoidance of feared stimuli, that is avoiding thoughts, memories, activities or people that can cause reminders of the traumatic experience. Hypervigilance and alterations in arousal levels where individuals can become irritable, emotionally reactive, exaggerated startle or fear response, problems with concentration and sleep disturbances. Dissociative reactions can cause an individual to feel that they are reliving the traumatic experience with extreme expression, loss of awareness or present in their surroundings, negative alterations in mood. Each of the above mentioned have more explicit criteria in them. PTSD requires a specifier of whether or not someone experiences this with dissociative symptoms and what type. It can be depersonalization, which is a feeling of detachment from and as if one is an outside observer of their mind and body. Or it can be derealization, which is a feeling that the world around you is unreal, dreamlike, distant or distorted, where both are common to experience when you have PTSD. PTSD can also be a delayed expression where the full diagnostic criteria can be met as long as six months after the traumatic experience or the event occurred. Now, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD, is a condition that can develop in response to repeated or intense trauma, such as the repeated exposure and experiences of family violence, sexual abuse, child trafficking, extreme parental neglect, and often occurs during childhood or formative years. It is not only during that time frame, though it can be at any stage of someone's life. The symptoms are similar to PTSD, but also include difficulties with managing emotion, known as affect dysregulation. It can be disturbances in self-organisation and self-esteem, negative self-concept and disturbances in relationship. Often individuals experience a negative self-view where they have negative beliefs about oneself such as feeling defeated or worthless, leading to feelings of guilt, shame and failure. The difficulties in regulating intense emotions can last for long periods of time where they have emotional sensitivity, difficulty dealing with emotions in a healthy or safe way, where overcompensatory behaviours occur in attempts to neutralise their internal and psychological distress. For example, individuals can overcompensate in binge or disordered eating, self-harm, overwork, sex, addiction or AOD misuse and abuse. And AOD is short for alcohol and other drugs, misuse and abuse. These behaviours attempt to numb and control the body given the intensity of the emotional and traumatic reactions. The CPTSD diagnosis commonly has comorbid symptoms with other diagnoses including borderline personality disorder, BPD, and dissociative identity disorder, DID. CPTSD is a relatively newer diagnosis, however more appropriate for individuals that have endured trauma over long periods of time. Now, let's get back to the conversation. What? hypothetical things would you be looking for in the formulation space, the predisposing, the precipitating? Could you throw some in there for us? So I guess it's like uh, a journey uh, and for you to be able to really provide uh, kind of the appropriate treatment, you really need to understand the client really well. Yeah. So it's like it's like some kind of a narrative, right? So you need to understand, let's say, you know, when they were growing up, what difficulties did they experience? Did they start to be uh, to develop like some kind of you know core beliefs uh, based on their own experience that in a way contributed to you know the way, let's say, they deal with certain situations. For example, let's say if you have uh, abusive parents, then you know that, you know, um, some of these clients might develop that kind of uh, 
sense of defectiveness or fear of abandonment. You need to really understand that, right? So because you're not just in a way focusing on the diagnosis of the client, you really need to understand the underlying issues or the root of the problem. Absolutely. If let's say as part of treatment is, you know, would be validation, right? Yeah. And unless you really have a good understanding of the formulation of how, let's say, all of these things kind of developed, yeah. how are you going to validate your client in terms of the client's, your client's difficulties, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's going to be difficult for you to, to be able to validate them and to understand where they're coming from mm-hmm. if, you really, if you don't really have a good formulation. So if you don't really kind of uh, a good kind of understanding of their narrative on how they got here, really. That's so true because you're you're bringing to my mind obviously things that you see in the industry and sector but also across the community because obviously sex and violent offenders carry a really high stigma and label in the community. It's important for me to identify the purpose of working effectively with sex and violent offenders in treatment and the assessments conducted so that their risk of reoffending recidivism and positive treatment outcomes are reached for the safety of the community and the individual that has offended. Often the individuals have significant vulnerability factors coupled with intellectual disabilities that need specific treatment needs, intervention and support for them to positively engage with others. Their level of risk can be managed should specific support and therapeutic rehabilitation occur. And overarchingly, their negative forms of behaviours and risk can be mitigated by the development of protective factors, such as engagement in treatment programs, individual psychological counselling, accuracy in their diagnosis to meet their treatment needs, appropriate funding and social supports, the use of multidisciplinary team approaches, and increased positive supports and connections in the community. Some also take anti-libidinal medication to reduce the targeted sexualized behaviors meeting comprehensive and in-depth treatment needs. The work that we're doing isn't about validating the offense or anything like that by any means, but it's actually understanding that there is a whole person who came to be by potentially being a victim or abused themselves. And to rehabilitate that, you have to uh, have a level of understanding for that, right? And I guess the challenge is, you know, you really have to set aside your judgment. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. really kind of separate that and really kind of step back, then, you know, you're not really doing your client any favor because that yeah. means, that, you know, you'll be kind of very judgmental and therefore you'll uh, more be more inclined to, let's say, be more kind of punitive Biased in terms or, yep. of your approach. So, so yeah. I kept saying to myself, if I get to the point where, I cannot really see the client's truth. Yeah. And I really kind of, you know, set aside my judgment and I should really be working in this area. Let's just say. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a hard one. And it's a, that's that line that we all walk as professionals in constantly practicing uh, self-reflection, but then owning what is your own biases or what then might be something that you hold versus what the client is holding as well. You, you brought... Uh, forward and you mentioned before the importance of assessments and personally I think you are incredible in the knowledge that you have in the breadth of assessments how to interpret them and really critically analyze the data how have you found assessments useful with working with the complex client presentation I think it's really crucial right so because let's so I'll give you an example. So let's say you have a client where uh, this client has a long-standing issue around anxiety. Yep. But you don't really know, you know, whether this client has any form, any kind of condition that you need to take into consideration, right? Mm-hmm. Let's just say that you know, if if let's say your consideration is this client has an anxiety disorder, let's say obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. it will be different from let's say a client who has who's neurodivergent, yeah, presenting with autistic anxiety, right? Yes, yes. So if you go down the track that it's this is more OCD and then more OCD and anxiety, and not mm-hmm. in a way ignore or disregard the possibility that this client is neurodivergent, then you just imagine what you know 
you know, um, how are you going to approach treatment with this client, right? It will be totally different. In terms of, you know, because you, you need to understand that the issues around neurodivergence and, you know, the need for neurodivergent affirming therapy. And that would be different if, let's say, your understanding of the anxiety is that, you know, it's another kind of condition or that, you know, you've basically missed out on diagnosing this client with the with a, a kind of a neurodivergent kind of uniqueness. So, And this is where I think, you know, you've got such a critical eye around the overlap and comorbidity and diagnoses because obviously if someone had OCD but it's missed in a neurodivergent space, and I think what we are talking about before, often we get a lot of CPTSD mixed with a personality disorder, mixed with a neurodivergent uh, issue. And we have sat many times over trying to really critically look and get the diagnosis right so that it's very accurate and the assessments show that. Also, can you talk about the importance of assessments? Because I know that you've done, let's say, formalised comprehensive assessments that then go to court or for the, the legal forensic side. What what happens in that space? Well, most of the time when uh, clients are referred to us for, let's say, a forensic assessment. Mm-hmm. So again, it depends on the context, but on most occasions, you know, they do uh, ask us or you know, for our opinion around, let's say, if the client has a particular diagnosis. Why is the accurate diagnosis of an intellectual disability important for sex and violent offenders? The criminal law takes into consideration a mental illness that usually focuses on two areas. One, unfitness to stand trial, and two, whether the offender who had a mental impairment at the time of the offence and can be criminally responsible for their offending. This is known as the defence of mental impairment. What does this mean? An individual may not be mentally fit to go through a trial process where the law is based on the fairness principle and the basic right of an accused to have a fair hearing when charged with a criminal offence. Someone may have an impaired mental functioning that makes them unfit to stand trial and unable to participate fairly in the trial. These can include a cognitive impairment, intellectual disability or an acquired brain injury, in short an ABI. So then what about the intellectual disability diagnosis? A diagnosed ID that is below 70 indicates extremely low cognitive ability. This may present with an array of difficulties with understanding expression of verbal information, processing verbal information, ability to express themselves in spoken language, interpreting visual material, hand-eye coordination or understanding of sequences, ability to hold short-term memory, concentration and attentional and processing instructions. The list goes on and now factor in the criminal offence and the considerations and forensic considerations around that. Think about whether an individual has capacity to proceed in a standard justice system and courtroom proceedings. They may have limitations in mental impairment. So let's get back to the conversation. So for example, let's say uh, if a client has intellectual disability, then they need to clarify whether, you know, as part of that diagnosis, whether there are any potential mitigating factors to their offending. So basically, if a client has um, or an offender has an intellectual disability, you're looking for mitigating factors for their offending. Can you maybe give that in a really conversationalist way for people? So let's just say you have a client who has committed a serious offense. Yeah. So let's say aggravated burglary. Yep. So and uh, so when you look at the history of the client, uh, you know, so the client hasn't been kind of previously diagnosed, and so so far the, the, the of With course nothing, yep. mm-hmm. the, the, the court system doesn't really know. Aside from, let's say, they're offending, whether there's kind of any issues with these clients, right? Yes. And let's say the lawyer said, "Oh, yeah, I noticed that you know when I was talking to him." that, you know, uh, he has kind of very limited kind of uh, problems with comprehension, expression. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when I see the client, I assess the client and, you know, and found out, you know, or, or diagnosed, let's say, the client with intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Of course, I look at the, let's say, the history, mm-hmm. and also circumstances around the offending. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And let's say you have a client who's highly suggestible or gullible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, um, anti-social kind of peers, you know, take advantage of him. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. So that's a vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. So, Which would then about, increase the risk of offending because there is yeah. influence. Yep. And yeah. you're trying to highlight those factors. Yeah. So that's a mitigating factor that, you know, you need to, uh, you know, that the court uh, it's important for the court to consider in yes. terms of sentencing. So, yes. of course, the, the other issue is, let's say, you know, uh, what would be the consequence of, let's say, uh, a custodial versus a non-custodial sentence, right? Mm-hmm. But if you, oh, if, can you explain that one for me? You're yeah. going to have to explain so that example, one again. Let's say, you know, <laughs> um, uh, if the, let's say uh, at times the uh, judge will request for a pre-sentence report. Yep. Asking, let's say, uh, what would be, let's say, the ramifications if this client, let's say, receives a sentence of imprisonment? Yeah. So because you know very well, you know, uh, in, in, uh, individuals with intellectual disability can be vulnerable within the to prison. Further harm, yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. not only that, but also, you know, they're also going to be mixing with other prisoners, that kind of thing. Some people, some prisoners might take advantage of them. Yes. You know, they're vulnerable in that kind of you know environment. Yes, those are the things that you know you uh, yeah. the judge will ask you to provide. Let's say uh, some recommendations or uh, an opinion on whether that will be an yes. issue. Let's say with with certain clients, not yeah. all of them, but with, with certain clients who have aside from intellectual disability, uh, also have a lot of psychological vulnerabilities. Yes. So, yeah. And this is where it's so important because I mean, and that I think in itself is why the assessment and actually getting an intellectual disability or um, a diagnosis correct because in the offending sense, yeah, they're then susceptible to more harm or they're then not in a position as we originally were talking about to then be rehabilitated and treated effectively for their level of cognitive impairment. And I recall you were talking to me one time about um, the score, the scores that are below um, I think it was the mental 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 impairment, unfit to plea. There is a score on the cognitive impairment when they're then no longer able to. I, I think what you were referring to was, uh, you know, issues around fitness to plead, right? So yeah. fitness to plead is about you know their ability to understand, let's say, their charges, understand you know the process of the, the court proceedings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Being able to, let's say, uh, give you know, instructions to their lawyer for the purpose of their defense. So with clients who have mild to moderate intellectual disability, so usually for you to be diagnosed with intellectual disability, you, your ISQ score should be below 70. So the average or the mean would be around 100, that kind of thing. So we're looking at really somebody who's uh, quite impaired. So that's two standard deviations below the mean that kind of thing. Let's break down the numbers that Joseph is referring to. On a cognitive assessment of intelligence and cognitive ability, better known as an IQ, there are certain numbers and scores that are standardised across the general population. A score of 100 is the mean and average of the general population, and the standard deviations are 15 increments above or below the mean. For example, a score of 85 is one standard deviation below the mean, and a score of 70 is two standard deviations below the mean. That is an extreme score for an outcome of cognitive functioning and ability. Imagine a score of 50 where the presentation of an individual severely differentiates from the general population, where they require care team support approaches, which is generally needed in scores lower than 70 or 75. There is often a difficulty to meet social norms, maladjustment and psychological disturbances with social isolation, difficulties maintaining friendships and employment, to name a few. Okay, now that you have a rough idea of the scores that Joseph was referring to, let's get back to the conversation. And then, as you, of course, see clients who who are more impaired, so let's say uh, an IQ of, let's say, 50 when they're below 70, there are many offenders that are actually below 70 and in the 50 range. What does that look like? What does that mean for that client presentation? 
So uh, for example, let's say, let's compare a client whose IQ is in the 60s, let's say 65. Yeah. Versus a client whose IQ is 55. 55. Mm-hmm. So that 10 point difference makes a huge difference in terms yeah. of clients functioning. Yeah. What does that mean? So let's say uh, they, of course, are going to find it much harder to understand, uh, let's say, or comprehend information. information. Yep. Their language. Um, I think we've had ones where they struggle to even hold a conversation but understand content of a conversation, let's say. And then, yep. of course, you can just imagine they also would have problems in memory. So they will yep. be able to remember, let's say, information related in court. They won't be yep. able to follow the court process. So yes. it gets really harder as you become kind of a client becomes more impaired. Yes. And we did see that. I mean, I recall, I remember one um, yeah. we were seeing where even just understanding the, the court system in the courtroom and then what a judge was, what a prosecutor was, um, that all become beyond what they're able to process yeah. in a cognitive space. Yeah. So, so not uh, all defendants with intellectual disability are found unfit. Mm-hmm. When you're, let's say, in the mid-60s, again, depending on the complexity of, let's say, your charges, mm-hmm. uh, a third or more than a third actually are still found fit. Mm-hmm. But as you, uh, you, know, you deal with, let's say, a defendant who's more or less in the mild to moderate intellectual mm-hmm. ability range, that mm-hmm. means in their 50s, mm-hmm. the likelihood of this defendant becoming unfit is much higher. Mm. Here's a here's an important question, because then how does someone with an intellectual disability then go through our uh, system and legislation differently from someone who doesn't have an intellectual disability? Well, I guess, you know, as I've mentioned, you know, uh, the judge or the court does take into consideration mitigating factors. Mm-hmm. Um, in, let's say, in New Zealand, we have the Intellectual Disability Act, yeah. uh, which uh, we don't really have here in in Australia. Yeah. However, there's, uh, you know, there's what we call the um, criminal, I think it's Criminal Mental Impairment uh, Act. Yeah really related to uh you know clients with intellect you know defendants with intellectual disability so they end up uh kind of looking at that kind of pathway legal mm-hmm. pathway in terms of sentencing mm-hmm. so for example if you're found not fit to stand trial and you are let's say uh you have intellectual disability Mm-hmm. Uh, you might, let's say, come under what we call a non-custodial supervision order. So there are different kind of supervision orders or yeah. orders that the judge can uh, use if, let's say, if you've been diagnosed with uh, yeah. uh, intellectual disability. Yeah, which is what you're talking about is sentencing then starts to differ between the intellectual disability client group versus the the ones without and no cognitive impairment. Yeah. So the, the legislation is the Crimes, Mental Impairment and Unfitness to be Tried Act, 1997. So, so this is the legislation here in uh, Melbourne, in Victoria. So we have uh, this particular act that is uh, used um, in terms of, you know, assessing, let's say, issues around fitness and also mental impairment. Now, this is an area you're quite familiar with in the forensic space, um, and you've done a lot of assessments and then expert witness uh, mm. testimony as well. And look, as psychologists, unless they work in the area of forensic psychology, they don't always get exposed to this kind of work. How do you feel and find working in the space and having to present as an expert witness for clients? Initially, when I started working in this area in, in the early 2000s, it was nerve-wracking. Let's just say, <laughs> of course, you know you have to give evidence, and yeah. uh, uh, there's not so much pressure. Yeah, and of course, you know you, you get cross-examined by you know um, defense. That yes. kind of thing. So it, it's yes. really you know uh, very stressful. Let's just say, yes. but over time, you know, you develop your confidence. You learn a lot. In terms of how to present, you learn from your own, ex- you know, from your experience, and also, you know, um, uh, you know, your kind of peers who also, you know, talk about their own kind of experiences. Yes, 
then yes. over time, you, know, you, you, def- you develop that kind of sense of confidence um, yeah. in, in terms of giving evidence. However, in saying that, every time I still have to, you know, if every time I has, I have to give evidence in court, you know, I still feel quite anxious, really. Yes. So, yeah. It doesn't go away, let's just say. So. <laughs> I think, it, and look, it's so normal. I speak to many lawyers and people who step into the courtroom. You always get that nervous apprehension feeling. It's not the most pleasant space. And um, even in the experience that you were supporting me on, it's, you know, uh, learning to find that confidence back yourself in with the data that you found, your findings. You don't necessarily. You give evidence, right? How was that experience? <laughs> you don't remember? <laughs> that was in the time of coming um, towards the end of COVID. So, um, but yes, it was it it was a lot more it was a lot more kind and inquisitorial in the sex offending space rather than the adversarial that you had you know supported me on as well. And um, I appreciated that. And at the end of the day, I think was reassured in that I was only ever going to speak about things that I knew that were written in the report because this one was a risk assessment giving evidence, but interesting and new. But again, you just essentially back what you know and your professional practice. And I think that's what I remind myself. So this is my opinion. As long yeah. as I come in prepared. Yes. I, you know, of course I'm very mindful about my remit. You know, what questions can I actually answer? And those where it might be beyond my kind of the remit of the purpose of the report or my expertise. Yeah. So as yeah. long as you remind yourself that, you know, you stay within that kind of uh, uh, confines and, and in some way, as long as you come prepared, you know. Yeah. That's the most that you can really do, right? So. And I, I think even for myself, it's the importance of the prep- the mental preparation and preparing what you're going to discuss. Um, also gives you that reassurance knowing you're there to put the right information forward that's accurate. You don't want to portray things in a different light than what you know. I would like to talk to you about, because I know you are so great in this space of neurodivergent issues and mental health. And as you know, in society, ADHD, ASD diagnoses have become so much more um, talked about in the community it's almost been used as colloquial thrown around terms as well um self-diagnosis are happening everywhere do you want to talk about what you would say is important around accurately diagnosing adhd asd or any other neurodivergent issue what do you think is an important area to get right in that assessment and diagnosis space I think it's really crucial, right, that, you know, a kind of a proper assessment is really conducted, uh, mm-hmm. formalize the diagnosis of mm-hmm. uh, ASD or, you know, ADHD or mm-hmm. any kind of um, your developmental disorder, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because the reality is that, you know, um, let's say if you focus on the diagnosis of ASD, then you let's say, miss that this client might have comorbid conditions or co-occurring yeah. conditions. Yeah. As, let's say, you know, uh, ADHD yeah. or maybe uh, a mental health issue. Yeah. Let's say major depressive disorder. Yeah. Or um, you know, the possibility that uh, this uh, client might also have personality issues. So it's important for you to really comprehensively assess for that right so because almost always if you have a client um who's an adult and um has a lot of difficulties that you know and uh possibly neurodivergent yep there's a huge possibility that they have co-occurring yes other yes. comorbid conditions that you know you need to really clarify and uh diagnose so and look, I'm going to add in there, we've had ones that were CPTSD, BPD, and ADHD that includes, like, you know, they're all um, singularly fairly considered diagnoses on their own, but they do have high comorbidities and crossover in their symptoms and presentations as well. But it is very possible to have them all with a complex presentation. And that's what I would like to hear you probably share a little bit more of your insight on because you have spoken to me many times about ADHD, ASD being up to 70% comorbid in their condition. Well, that's really quite interesting, right? Because usually when our clients come in, uh, they have IFI uh, an expectation, let's say, or, you know, they will request or let's say the doctor requested, let's say, oh, you know, please uh, 
doing uh, conduct an ADHD assessment. That's very, just, very common at the moment, right? People will just come in straight for an ADHD assessment. Yep. And what happens is that, you know, sometimes we have our own biases and we might say, okay, let's just focus on ADHD. Yes. You conduct uh, an assessment and just confirm, let's say, the diagnosis of ADHD, right? Yes. Yes. Um, so I have clients like that where they come in and I explain to them, you know, I educate them that when we're conducting ADHD assessment, it's really a comprehensive assessment. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a client where, you know, especially when a client is neurodivergent, you know, uh, uh, especially let's say an autistic adult, especially male, it's easy, yep. it's easy to pick up, let's say, uh, some kind of, you know, um, uh, presentation that might say to you, you know, you seem to have some autistic traits or something like that, right? Yes. Yeah. And like with this particular client, I didn't really pick up anything because he was masking, really. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. And so I just shown in, uh, you know, uh, some additional kind of uh, assessments. Yeah. And then, you know, found that, he, you know, he's actually autistic. He has autism. So uh, yes. can you just imagine if you just focused on ADHD and diagnosed the client? And you gave that singular diagnosis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Missing ASD. And this client also has uh, a persistent depressive disorder. Yeah. And also uh, some complex trauma issues. So not complex ASD, but complex trauma. But it's a history issue. of complex trauma. Yep. Yeah. In the background. So can you just imagine if you missed out all of that? Yeah. So that has kind of education, right? So Big pieces, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what you and I end up having conversations about, though, because let's say, I mean, even as you found, even if you medicate or someone's doing a psychiatric-led um, treatment program for ADHD, that medication and that space will alleviate some of the symptoms. But like you said, can you just imagine you're missing out ASD factors of language and social relatedness issues or sensory motor issues, Um and then the other mental health concerns and then the history of trauma, there's a little bit more issues which is why we fall back on that formulation and diagnosis space. And I think that's part of the reason why I've loved learning and working with you in that because there's it's meaty in that you don't want to miss a lot of the information because it's actually accurately helping someone in their treatment. And like in this case, when you think about, let's say, the client's issues, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the the ADHD symptoms are not actually at the top of the list. It was yes. really a complex trauma. Yes. So yes. just imagine if you just focus on ADHD. Yes, you know, it would be helpful for you to provide some interventions around that, but missing, you know, kind of the more, more pertinent issues around, you know, his complex trauma and, uh, you know, uh, that is actually autistic. So can you just imagine you've missed that altogether? Can you shed some light on that? point a little bit more around why complex PTSD or a personality disorder may be the more pressing diagnosis or issues to work with when something like ADHD or a neurodivergent issue can be underlying and not necessarily the primary issue to address. Why would that happen and maybe clear that up for our listeners around how that looks in a client presentation? So let's just say, you know, you have ADHD, right? So you have problems in focusing, attention, you know, problems in planning organization. You you might also have, let's say, problems in memory. Yes. And maybe some uh, kind of, um, you tend to act on the spur of the moment, you know, quite hyperactive. So, of course, that's important to address in treatment, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have a client where, you know, especially with adults, chances are, you know, they also have co-occurring comorbid conditions, right? So for yeah. example, let's say complex trauma. Yeah. So let's say the client... Um, has problems, let's say, with fear of abandonment and mistrust abuse, that kind of thing, because of his upbringing. Yes. And that's affecting his relationships seriously. Yes. To the point where he's getting really depressed, you know, he feels isolated, mm-hmm. he feels really angry, so he also has, like, violent ideation. So, you know, those are more pressing issues than, you know, just having difficulty with focusing or, you know, or with attention, right? And maintaining your attention on a particular So I'm not saying that that's not important, but if you try to prioritize treatment, for him, the most pressing issue was around, you know, know, this kind of difficulties that that I mentioned. So so therefore, it's important for you to prioritize that over 
let's say. And and sometimes, let's say, if it's a, a kind of a moderate severity, you can be dealing with them at the same time. You can, yeah, but, you can you know, balance that. Mm-hmm. But at that time, when I, I saw this particular client, that was really the pressing issue that, you know, yeah. he's really struggling to actually with his interactions uh, in that, you know, with other people. Because, you know, he he's, has difficulty connecting. He tends to actually either comply or feel subjugated. Yes. And yes. then, of course, you try to understand the why, you know, or they have unrelenting standards yeah. thing, or self-sacrifice. And it's important for you to really understand the underlying issues, right? And uh, in, in this particular case, yeah, this client has complex trauma issues. Yeah. And therefore, you know, you need to prioritize that in treatment, really. So adding in there, it's more like they they essentially are presenting more in crises and all these areas that in their daily life, you know, um, loneliness or intensified relationships or emotional reactivity or mood dysregulation, all those things become so much more pressing um, because they generally have to be managed first over the neurodivergent issues that might be underlying so I mean and thank you for clarifying that because I think sometimes that in these complicated diagnoses and presentations these areas and these things can be um, overlooked at times. And what's interesting is uh, you know when let's say you share your formulation with your client it's like it's very liberating right so now both are on the same page so these are the issues that we need to deal with in therapy right because initially they might come in like for example with that client his focus was really on adhd because he thought at that time that was the pressing issue yeah Um, i shared with him my formulation and my understanding yeah joseph now it makes a lot of sense and the problem is of course you know like uh a lot of our clients, you know, they have very biased recollection of their childhood, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for example, mm-hmm. let's say they might say to you, yeah, I had a, you know, a great upbringing, you know, and then that, then they, because of course their experience is, you know, that's normal. We do hear that's that. But we don't talk about emotions, you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, or that, you know. Uh, Emotional deprivation, lacking in warmth, parental role modeling. Yep. Yeah. And then you realize actually, you know, that's not actually normal. You know, no. so, so that's the reason why, uh, you know, it's hard to really kind of, um, you know, we focus on treatment if you don't really uh, have a shared formulation and understanding of the issues. Really. Because then what you could be working on, which I've had that many times over, even I had it recently in an eating disorder space, you know. Um, you can focus on just the eating disorder, let's say, but if there's underlying trauma, the eating disorder persists. and um, it's really trying to take it as a whole and the formulation and origin. And they really, I mean, essentially clients come in wanting to better understand themselves for a level of healthy and a level of functionality beyond what they're working on yeah. with you. So, Like I have a client where she's in her 30s. Yep. Long-standing anxiety. seen so many psychologists. Yeah. Mm, and then, mm. of course, in anxiety, uh, let's provide you with, let's say, you know, uh, strategies like relaxation, you know, mm-hmm. also relaxation, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing, breathing exercises. But, you know, and he, she also has a history of eating disorder. And then when I was actually looking at her history, I strongly suspect uh, suspected um, that um, she has autism. Autism, yep. I, yep. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and then... Of course, I proceeded with, uh, informed her about my kind of, you know, my impression. We proceeded with uh, conducting an assessment and and I formally diagnosed her with um, autism. Yep. And now it's like everything makes sense. This is why I have this long-standing anxiety, you know what I mean? So, and of course it affected, you know, even you think about eating disorder, again, also the sensory issues, the texture, etc. So, and and so all this time, it's like you know, uh, her experience of let's say treatment is just putting band aid on a festering sore, right? Because yeah. they really know the underlying issue. She has gone through so many psychologists. The same thing. Yeah. She didn't actually, you know, realize you know until we actually conducted this assessment that you know, yeah. And even if I, we can talk about like. You know, just for, to clarify these, the assessments that are formalised aren't 
the screener ties. We're talking about the formalized assessment that are purpose, that are thorough, that are comprehensive, and the purpose is to formalize a diagnosis. And that is the gold standard or an evidence-based approach to get the most accurate diagnosis. So you can do screeners for ASD, ADHD to get preliminary findings of ADHD or ASD in particular. But to formalize it, you really want to do the critical analysis. And as you mentioned earlier, to you know, having the ancillary information before 12 years of age, what their childhood was like, was their trauma present, and that's where sometimes it gets complicated with adult yes. diagnoses too. And also, you know, uh, of course now everything's accessible, right? You can, you know, complete a, let's say, uh, an ADHD test on the internet. Yes. <laughs> like, let's say the DSM-5, so the diagnosis considerations, etc. Yes. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, the reality is that, you know, um, on most occasions, it's actually more complex than that because of Very. course, there's what we refer to as transdiagnostic issues. So what mm-hmm. you might think like, oh, it fits with ADHD, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Realize mm-hmm. It actually also fits with bipolar disorder Yes, or it, yes. it fits with another condition. So yes. and that's yes. where, you know, uh, uh, clinical psychologists come, uh, they come in, right, to actually... Yes you know, uh, make sense of all the diagnostic considerations and really think about whether this is more a presentation of a certain condition versus another condition, let's just say. So they might think that it's ADHD, then mm-hmm. actually, uh, they don't realize that actually it's more bipolar rather than ADHD. Yep, so. yep. bipolar with the stimulus-seeking behaviors or the mood. Yep, yep. Wow. I mean, and that's where I, I, I like like you said, troubleshooting and then actually essentially figuring figuring out the diagnosis in context of the formulation as well. How do you find then once you've got to a space then with a client, more moving into the treatment space of once you've got an accurate and clear diagnosis with someone, do you find that then moves in a better space for treatment with them? I think it's uh, the diagnosis and the formulation. Mm-hmm. So once I, let's say, uh, so if, let's say, a client comes in, uh, let's say under Medicare, see a client, usually I've used the first few sessions to really obtain collateral information, try to, you know, get a sense of, let's say, any kind of diagnostic considerations and also formulation mm-hmm. to explain that to the client, really. Because sometimes the client might come in and say, I want to deal with my anxiety. So, so usually I, you know, I... I, of course, take that into consideration, but also explain and educate the client around the process. Yeah. And yeah. once I, let's say, get to the process where, you know, I've, of course, I have a thorough kind of personal history. I've done some assessments. And and then what I do is I share my kind of understanding with the client. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So I'll say that, you know, so far, this is my understanding, okay, of your issues. And then I'll say that, you know, I along the way, I also conducted some assessments and my assessment uh, findings indicate that you have autism or let's say complex PTSD or whatever yeah. kind of condition. Yeah. And then, so both of us are on the same page now, right? So the client says, ah, okay. So, and then we review uh, kind of the, the client's kind of reason for coming in because initially it might, they may think it's just anxiety and anxiety management. Then they actually don't realize that actually it's, you know, much more complicated than that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. about my underlying sense of defectiveness. Yeah, yeah. So therefore... Which could be know, origin of their trauma. Address the underlying issue, right? So yeah. because you can manage the, you know, you can provide, let's say, I, I, I also, of course, provide kind of, you know, practical strategies to uh, 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 when, what's this, uh, manage the anxiety, but you still have to address the underlying issue, right? Yeah. So if underlying issues around emotional deprivation, yeah. you know, or for example, let's say a sense of defectiveness, then you need to uh, address that particular issue. And unless, let's say, you know, you have a good formulation, then you won't get to that point where you can actually share that, and so for so that you and the client. Uh, have a shared kind of understanding of what issues really need to be addressed in treatment. Which is also bringing to light the root cause and actually allowing them to understand how they function because a lot of mental health just causes confusion for an individual. Yeah, yeah. I love these deep dive conversations with you, Joseph, because I feel 
there's just such a wealth of knowledge that can be gained by all. You know, we like to get into the nitty-gritty of uh, mental health and for the purpose of the betterment of the client and the work that we're doing. Now, at the end of each episode, I have a few ethos life questions. Okay. What do you think is important for psychologists to know about complex client presentations? The client's really formulation. So the client's formulation and diagnosis. So they really need to understand that before they even, let's say, work with these clients. Well, I think it's really crucial for treatment. Yes. So, you know, it's for you to be able to identify what to prioritize and what's really important in treatment. For me, what's sitting with me after you said that is essentially it's it's why we do the work we do. We want to be able to help and improve someone's mental health and overall functioning to a healthy space. So if you can get that right, you're on a better trajectory for their treatment, you know, their psychological counseling, whatever they're seeing you for. So. Why are you passionate about working with the neurodivergent population? I find it really fascinating, very challenging, and I know I can make a difference. Love that. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It is very true. So true. Your research and everything that you've done has already made such a profound impact on our work in psychology. So, yeah, I think it's a really good one. In one word, how would you sum up your work in forensic psychology? Inspiring. I love inspiring. Do you want to say more? Yeah, it's just that I find it really kind of, yeah, it's challenging and it's exciting at the same time. So... Yeah, I love it. Inspiring. And I think, yes, I can relate. Like it's it's that you and I have quite inquisitive minds of figuring it out, troubleshooting, putting the pieces of the puzzle back together. That's how I kind of always um, explain it to myself. And that challenge is the excitement that you're talking about. And and sometimes like the kind of feeling where you think you already know everything, then you realize you, you, you just you, don't. Yeah. <laughs> Psychology will always tell you exactly you don't, right? So. <laughs> thank you so much for answering those questions and being on today's episode i love our conversations and i truly appreciate it we are privileged to have this kind of in-depth discussion with someone like yourself so thank you if you'd like to access our team of psychologists for professional mental health support please visit www.ethospsychology.org Thank you for listening and subscribe to Life in the Cyclone on your favourite podcast listing platform to better understand psychology today.